Welcome to Miranda Warnings Roundtable, discussing legal issues and current events. I'm joined on the roundtable by Liz Benjamin and Professor Vin Bonventry. Liz is the Managing Director at Marathon Strategies, a public relations and communications firm, and former host of Capital Tonight, a political and policy show focusing on New York State politics. And Professor Vin Bonventry, Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School and publisher of the New York Court Watcher, devoted to commenting on the U.S. Supreme Court and the New York State Court of Appeals. This week on Miranda Warnings Roundtable, uh, we're going to be talking about New York and the New York Court of Appeals. Uh, but before we do that, there's been some uh, sad and breaking news that former uh, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, the first woman uh, judge of the Supreme Court has passed. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, was uh, has, in addition to her, her other accomplishments, uh, was the recipient of the New York State Bar Association's gold medal. And uh, she will certainly uh, be missed. She was a trailblazer uh, for women on the court. And uh, I thought it would be worthwhile mentioning uh, at the top of the episode. I, Vin and, and Liz, I give you an opportunity if you want to say something. I mean, you know, it's so interesting that, first of all, you have probably like a lot of people, when I saw her name, I was like, oh, hadn't really thought about her in a while. Um, but she had a very fascinating career. Uh, and now you look at the bench and you don't think to yourself like, oh, there was a time when there weren't women on this bench. But it was, it's really her breaking of the glass ceiling on the highest court in the nation is an accomplishment that we don't think about all that terribly much uh, these days. So it's really was worthwhile for me to read her obituary and, and remember all that she accomplished. I think that's an excellent point, Liz. And the fact that we, we don't always think about it as much anymore is, is a credit to her and, and uh, what she accomplished. Right. Uh, and ben, was, I know that you've studied her uh, yeah. opinions and her career. Yeah, and um, let's not just cabin her into being the first woman on the court, which, which of course is historic. The fact of the matter is she was a great judge, a great mm. judge. She was not one of these judges that came up with some falsified interpretive methodology or mechanical jurisprudence. She was one that really considered the practical realities what are the impacts of the decisions of the court on real life, on real human beings, whether we're talking about affirmative action, whether we're talking about LGBTQ rights, the separation of church and state. I mean, just over and over again, you know, she was always concerned about that, which, of course, was one of the reasons why she infuriated some of the others on the court. And she was the swing vote, right? She was the swing vote on the court. She was a conservative Republican, um, but she wasn't insane. I mean, she was had a great deal of common sense. And uh, most of her decisions, you look back at them and say, boy, they were wise. Very, very wise. I did get to meet her a few times. She actually escorted us. Uh, that's us, the finalists for the Supreme Court Fellowship in February of 1986. And uh, I just fell in love with her right then. We got to talk about Arizona, which we both love. I ran into her several times after that. Absolutely a lovely, lovely human being and a great judge. 
Well, thank you, thank you both very much for 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 those uh, highlights about uh, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, we had scheduled to talk about the New York Court of Appeals, which we had we talked a lot about at the beginning of the year, and and we hadn't talked about much lately. So, following a year of transition, uh, New York's highest court now has a new chief judge in in Rowan Wilson, elevated from associate judge, uh, a new associate judge, Caitlin Halligan, uh, both in their respective positions since April. We're going to take a look at some developments over the last six months in the court. Uh, I know Vin just wrote an article about the court's caseload. We'll talk about that. The number of opinions in criminal appeals. We'll talk about that a little bit. And we'll look at some significant decisions that have come down already uh, from the court uh, this year already. So let's talk about that. Vin, let's, let's start off with uh, this article you just wrote about uh, an uptick in the court's caseload that's noticeable just in the first six months. Tell us what you found. Sure, I found that the court's caseload has increased by almost 50% uh, since uh, Chief Judge Wilson has been in charge of scheduling oral arguments, uh, which is quite substantial. It's, it's nothing yet like it was when Jonathan Lippman was chief, I mean, it was, you know, when Jonathan Lippman was chief, it was still quite a bit more than Wilson has been able to do so far. But Wilson's getting there. And Wilson has made it clear while he was associate judge and uh, made it clear during his interviews for chief judge that he thought the court ought to be hearing more cases. And they certainly are. And in fact, they just took a look at criminal appeals. And if you look at how many criminal appeals the court had been hearing prior uh, to uh, Rowan Wilson becoming chief judge, it was about 13 or 16 for every four month period. I've been looking at four months because it's been four months since Chief Judge Wilson has been putting together the schedule. Right. Um, so in his first four months putting together the schedule, 26 criminal appeals as opposed to the exact same period the year before, only 13. Again, so this doesn't- Hold on, Ben. We're on Zoom, so I have like a little hand, a little hand up. Do you see my hand? Oh, yeah. Do you see that? I yes. do, but yeah, I just, you, can, you can just butt in. In all seriousness, I mean, I'm just doing that for fun, but in all seriousness, and, and this is a real question, I'm not trying to be cheeky. Why is why is the number of cases, why does it matter? Why is um, uh, uh, substance- uh, not, I mean, are we really, uh, we're really considering the efficacy and of a court based on how many cases it is willing to dispose of? No, it's, it's not that. But, you know, when you think that there are literally millions and millions of cases each year in the court system in New York, it's pretty pathetic when you have seven judges, each of whom have three clerks, the chief judge has four clerks, and they're only hearing, what, 70 cases a year? I mean, come on, you know. But of all those cases, how many of them do you think really valuably rise to the level of being considered by the highest court in the state and then substantively to set precedent that then impacts every single resident? There's a lot of cases. I don't give you, I don't, I'm not quibbling with that, but I'm going to think that like, a vast percentage of those cases are not worth the time of the high. Of the no, high. look, you're absolutely right. When I was clerking at the court um, for the first judge, 
uh, Judge Jason, uh, the court heard over 700 cases a year. Now, you slice that in half, slice that in half, say only 300. I'm telling you, in my experience at the court, there were at least two or 300 cases a year that had real substance and the and the judges were working. I don't want to identify anybody, you know, but I've been told by one of the judges, I don't have anything to do. Hmm. You know, invite me to your class. I'll talk to your class anytime because well, I just don't have much to do. I think that I think that I think Liz's point is that what we're more concerned about is the, you know, the quality of the work rather than yeah. the quantity. Quantity, but, yeah. But I, I know that there was an issue and 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 then I know you touched on this. There was an issue regarding uh uh leave for criminal leave with respect to criminal appeals that that somehow that was uh problematic because there were uh a number of criminal appellate issues that just weren't being heard, right? And so that you know that meant that the the decisions were were staying the way they were. That's right. Uh, which uh, some had viewed was inordinately um, anti criminal right. defendant, and the fact that at least they were being considered, they were considering more cases would at least provide the opportunity for some uh, criminal defense issues. And we're going to talk about some of the cases actually that they have opinions on. Um, you know, Chief Judge. Uh... Chief Judge Jonathan Lippman used to say to me, you know, uh, when he became uh, chief judge, because he looked at how few criminal appeals the different judges were allowing to come to the court. And he said, it's just not fair. There are so many cases there which really deserve our attention. And the lawyers and their clients are just not getting an opportunity uh, for their cases to be resolved by the highest court in the state. Now, come on, you know, if when you're dealing with, say, recently, you know, only 70 cases a year, give me a break. And also don't tell me about the quality and the quantity. I don't think there's anybody who watches, who observes, closely looks at the Court of Appeals is ever going to argue to you that the opinions of the last several years are somehow of this fine quality, finer than they had been previously. <laughs> but this, but like, come on. Be, look, to play devil's advocate, the, the, it's it's predicated on what people appeal. So you can only pick from the cases that people decide to pursue. So there might be something to tease out there based on what actually comes to them. And they have, I'm not saying that they should or should not take more cases but they're also the whole system is time consuming and expensive right and the idea that you have to appeal and appeal and appeal and get yourself up usually it works that way right. not always to the high court you know not everybody's got the stomach for that or the wallet well of course but you know we're not talking about a decrease in the number of motions for appeal or leaves for appeal to right. the Court of Appeals. They're still getting thousands. It's just that they're rejecting many, many more. They're mm -hmm. declining to hear many, many more cases. Yeah, That's but, what's going on. And, and I think uh, in that regard, there was an article recently in the New York Law Journal by Thomas Newman. Yeah, who yeah. noted that the there's an increase in a granting of leave by a judge of the Court of Appeals on criminal matters uh, and, and noted that there were opinions in those cases where 
as uh, more likely to be opinions in, during this term than in the past uh, when uh, there were not. Yeah, Tom, Tom Newman wrote a piece for the Albany Law Review talking about the caseload at the Court of Appeals over the years and how it's been changing. But he's another one that's been saying, oh, come on, you could certainly hear more cases. There are certainly plenty of very, very important cases out there that deserve the Court of Appeals attention. Well, it, it seems according to his statistics and yours, at least initially, we're seeing an uptick in oh, yeah. the number of cases that are coming yeah. through. And let's maybe we could talk about some of those cases. Vin, I know you you look at, um, you know, all the cases that come in. And I know you have some uh, assessments of the cases and where the alliances might be. And maybe we could talk about that with, uh, you know, some of the cases that have come out. There was one that caught my attention uh, recently, recently came down, was the case of People versus Cabrera, which um, is a is a, a, a gun possession case um, that was post-Bruin uh, that went up to the Supreme Court. Um, what do you think of uh, of that case? They, they said there were two issues in there. One was whether uh the uh the consent was su sufficient for the search uh and whether the individual was in custody and we'll talk about that but the 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 first issue that was addressed was whether Bruin renders the New York gun licensing unconstitutional and you know the the court said that it uh, they wouldn't consider that because it wasn't raised at trial but it couldn't have been raised at trial because the Supreme Court decision hadn't come down yeah, you know, David, I mean, there were several of these gun cases, the Cabrera, David, Garcia, Pastrana, and maybe there were a couple of others um, missing. And in every one of those cases, the court, the majority said the issue about the gun rights was not preserved. And Rivera, Judge uh, Jenny Rivera, in all of those cases is saying, yes, it was preserved. This individual had no reason to be raising the Bruin case right? Because the Bruin case had not been decided yet by the United States Supreme Court. And she said in the past, when there was an intervening decision, which would change the law, that we excuse the fact that somebody didn't raise the change of law at the trial level. And so she was the only one that said, look, I think we, I think we ought to be addressing the gun rights issue, you know, and, uh, yeah, the rest of the court didn't. But, you know, this thing about preservation, look, let's be real about it. Um, preservation is a way to get rid of a case if you don't want to address it. And mm. I don't think there's any question looking at these cases. The court just did not want to address it yet unless it absolutely had to. Liz, remind was, me Liz then, was groaning there, so we'll... Uh, well, I, no, I'm just, I'm trying to remember. Remind me, did the Supreme Court take the New York gun case? No, right? It did. No, it, it did. did and it found that it was unconstitutional. The Bruin case, yeah. The Bruin case, right. So, like, I guess I, I'm not trying to excuse the court. I just, since the high, uh, our court, rather, in the New York high court, since the so, since the Supreme Court weighed in on that particular case, I don't know. I, I, why would you, gun cases are so difficult and controversial and polarizing yeah, why, no, why but, not, but it's why important to the person that got a, that's arrested for a, a, a gun crime that the Supreme Court has 
now indicated the legislation that he was or she was arrested under is unconstitutional. Yeah. Uh, right? I mean, that would seem to be pretty important to the what, person. Why does arrested. that not automatically vacate the 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 uh um conviction? No. Well, because there are other issues that arise. They're all not about the Bruin, uh the New York requirement that was overturned in Bruin that the individual must prove that the individual had some special cause, some proper reason for being able to possess a gun, get a license. That wasn't necessarily at issue in these cases. There were other kinds of conditions placed upon possessing a, a firearm and which the Court of Appeals could have addressed that weren't really addressed in the Bruin case. Mm. So, you know, there's all kinds, you know, whether somebody who's been convicted in the past of a felony, whether there can be restrictions on allowing somebody to get a license to possess a firearm if the person had been convicted of a felony in the past. That has not been decided yet. Whether somebody who is convicted of a domestic uh, violence offense, whether or not that person can be restricted. Uh, that case, by the way, is at the United States Supreme Court right now. But uh, so there are all kinds of variations of gun restrictions that have not been decided by the Supreme Court. So, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this Cabrera case. I know you mentioned a couple of them. This one caught my eye because there was an issue that was the Court of Appeals had to decide, which was whether handcuffing and detention is sufficient to be considered in custody for the purposes of of being provided with a Miranda warning, which I also shout out to the Miranda warnings. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, right? it was very <laughs> branding, branding placement. Right. Every but, time a person gets pulled over and read their rights, it's branding placement. That's absolutely. But the but the question was, uh, is handcuffing and detention uh, sufficient to be considered in custody? That's uh, it would seem as though uh, certainly should be. And the Court of Appeals uh, said it was. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, surprises me that that's, that would be an issue. Well, that's because the Court of Appeals, with regard to seizure issues, has been absolutely dreadful. Um, among, among other reasons, because, you know, there were a couple of these Scalia decisions which were just ridiculous. And Chief Judge uh, uh, John Roberts has been trying to clean up the mess that Scalia made. You know, there's this um, Hadari case in which uh, in which Scalia said that it did Scalia. not Im implicate a seizure at all. You know, if the police are chasing somebody, they have no reason, no warrant no probable cause, no reasonable suspicion. And they chase this person and the person finally falls and they get him. And Scalia said, well, that's not a seizure. The person's not in any custody for Fourth Amendment purposes because, you know, there wasn't any physical force applied on this guy. So, you know, I mean, so you have nonsense like that. And with regard to custody for Miranda purposes, Fifth Amendment purposes, they're doing the same kind of nonsense. It's like, you know, well, you would think that the police should be reciting Miranda warnings um, to uh, to the accused, to the suspect. And the court says, no, it's not custody. No, it's not custody. No, well, in this case, the, the, our court, the New York Court of Appeals actually said that is custody. Yes. Um, 
which it would but that's not but that's not the, the Supreme Court I think in previous cases right. has said simply because somebody is in uh, is in handcuffs does not mean that person's in custody. You're talking about the US Supreme Court. So there's a obviously, you know, a difference right. in the in the jurisprudence of the two courts and uh New York state also has a constitution that right. uh, the New York state constitution that uh the court of appeals uh is able to apply uh, beyond what uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Absolutely. Does. For the United States Supreme Court, you know, custody for the purpose of Miranda warnings and the Fifth Amendment really is, is somebody like incommunicado? Um, are they in some kind of an interrogation room, you know, with the light hanging down? The person is absolutely, you know, by like himself. He's isolated and he's frightened. <laughs> That's custody for the Supreme Court. Then... Yeah. Lynn is operating in the 1950s still, just to be clear. What do you? <laughs> well, the Supreme Court is saying that basic that that is custody. What we used to do in the 50s, and other than that, it's not custody. Well, uh, at least in New York, in this case, and I think they they pointed out the majority at least pointed out uh, that the the in this particular case when the the person was handcuffed and detained that it would be. Um, that would count as being in custody, but they didn't go so far as to say that that would be the case every, every time. time. That's that right. Every time, although the dissent uh, in this case felt that it should be right uh, a per se rule that if you're handcuffed and detained, that that would be count as in custody. Right. Um, there was another interesting case about these, uh, you know, the stopping cases, uh, People versus Rodriguez. Uh, also known as the bicycle stop case. So there was an issue as whether, obviously, if you stop an auto and detain the occupants, that would constitute a seizure. But in this case, the person was on a bicycle and uh, the court held. And the court said, yep. Bicycle stop is a traffic stop, same as uh, an <laughs> well, auto. Well, here's the thing, though. Look, all of this to me begs the question a little bit, since I'm the only non-lawyer in the room. And when we talk about the custody case, not to get back to that, but the, uh, the, the logical person on the street, if you stopped a person on the street and you said, if a person is in handcuffs in the back of a police car, are they in custody? I think most logical people would say, Thank you. yes. In this instance, what bikes actually have to adhere to the rules of the road. Now, I'm a cyclist myself, and am I always doing the correct, like, you know, hand signal thingies that I'm supposed to be doing? I'm always wearing my helmet, just to be clear, which everyone should do because it's a safety issue. This is my PSA of the moment. But if you are, if you are a vehicle, uh, even a self-propelled vehicle that has to adhere to the rules of the road, then it would seem logical that if a law enforcement officer pulls you over you have the same rights as you would just because you're not in a car well, how is that any different yeah well, I, don't, I agree you know i agree entirely with liz i don't even understand why this was an issue the fact either. of the matter is if the police are going to arrest somebody they need probable cause and they need a warrant unless it's some kind of an urgent situation but they still need probable cause <clears throat> excuse me to stop somebody whether that person's in a car whether that person's walking whether that person's on a scooter regardless of whether that person is jogging down the street or anything reasonable suspicion is required for law enforcement to actually stop somebody so, so i don't understand same requirement why it would be for, different for a bicycle same requirement for everything <laughs> Why not? I mean, it, it just, and if you're saying that it's- Stop somebody, yeah. Well, the question is whether it constitutes a seizure. 
right? Um, I mean, right? So that was the issue, whether it constituted, if you're in a car and you're detaining someone in a car, that's considered a seizure. Now, apparently, bicycle is a seat. Is Why wouldn't? It's a vehicle. Seizure. It's a via a mode of transportation, just because so, it's self-propelled. So yeah, I mean, the dissent talks about, well, what about skateboards and... Yes. The same thing. If you stop yes. somebody people that run fast, that is a seizure. No, 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 no. Not people that run fast because that's not vehicular. And that's not. There's not. I would argue you could make the distinction, and I know, I, I know what the opposition said, but you can make the distinction that if a person is utilizing a skateboard or a scooter or a city bike yeah. or a, or now, now you get a little bit funky with roller skates or inline skates, but there is a method of transportation that is being utilized. Anything with that, wheels, according that, to. You. What if you have yeah, those sneakers? What if you have those sneakers where the wheels pop out? Those are wheels. You just said wheels was the wheels was the, the wheels defining is factor. The, is right. the Liz jurisprudence? If you're well, but wheels, then it's like, then oh, it's but I'm on a I'm on a snowmobile, and the snowmobile doesn't have wheels; it has treads. Or I'm on a I'm skiing down the street. Or whatever. Like I mean, those, look, what about those big shoes in the snow? Snowshoes? That's what they call them. I think snowshoes. <laughs> those oh, things. <laughs> I don't understand why vehicles or wheels has anything whatsoever to do with it. The fact of the matter is, if law enforcement stops somebody, mm. they must have reasonable suspicion. That's been the law for a long, long time. That is a seizure. Police can come up to somebody and ask a question. That's one yeah. thing. But they can't stop somebody. I don't care if they're walking, they're skipping, they're on a scooter, they're on a bike. Police cannot actually detain somebody unless the police have some justification. And the lowest form of justification in constitutional law is reasonable suspicion. And that should apply whether it's a bicycle, whether it's a scooter. I don't care what the heck it is. Well, all right. Well, there was... <laughs> All right. David, David's like, that's these a, people that's are a, getting impassioned. They're impassioned about bicycles. I don't know where to take this. I'm moving on. That's, that's a, I, I think I understand your, your, the two, the two positions. I think uh, there should be a higher standard for bicycles because they are doing an environmental I knew you justice were say to that. the climate. I was wondering when you were going to get there. There should yeah. be a higher standard for anything that is self-propelled and therefore not generating. Absolutely. I, I'm with Liz on this one. Yeah, okay. I, well, I'm we'll wondering see. when you go there. We'll see. We'll okay, see wait, David, 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 David. Can yes. we say something? As I look over what's going on at the Court of Appeal, yeah. right. it's not Tell just me. about any particular case. Tell me the big picture. But it's about something else that's going on. That when you look at all the cases, at least to a nerd like me, something really pops out. You know, when Janet DeFiori was the chief judge, and Conatara was appointed to the court. He never dissented even once while she was on the court, while she was the chief judge. When he was the acting chief, he only dissented in one case. And that had to do with whether firefighters with disabilities were entitled to certain benefits. Of course, he voted against the firefighters and he lost that one. One dissent the entire time he was on the court until... Wilson became, he was always on the winning side since he's been on the court, but no longer. Now you have Garcia, you have Singus, and you have Conataro in dissent quite a few times since Wilson has become chief. 
This court is being turned around. I don't think there's any question about it. Is that a good thing? Well, well, I mean, for those of us who think that the court has been really pathetic for the last several years here, I do think it's a good thing. The I mean, this, well, this is, you know, this has not been the court of appeals that many of us are used to that are proud of. That's one of the great courts in the country. Nobody would seriously argue that this has been one of the great courts in the country yeah, over I the gotta, last several I, years. I don't know, Van. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little bit on that. Uh I, you know. I did some reading uh, on these cases, a couple of ones that you pointed out. Yeah. I thought the opinions were really quite good on both sides. Uh, oh, now. The issue. They, they were uh, uh, across the board. I thought now they, they were, they were, yeah. they were well-written. Uh, they were interesting. I understood where yeah. they were coming down. It wasn't unclear, especially no. on the criminal no, matters. I, I, I think there's been so a I'm real change. Well, he's saying, he's all, you're making the argument for it. You're making his case, David. What he's saying, the court's been turned around. You're saying, no. oh, I'm, and he's, it's going in a direction that he appreciates. In other words, moving back towards he, more towards the, the mark of the That's high right. water mark of the That's previous right. court. So you're right. actually just, well, you we're, know, we're... underscoring that. In, in, all the, in all those cases, the majorities were written by either Wilson or Rivera, or Halligan. Three really bright, bright judges. Can we talk about Halligan for a second, just for one sure. second? Because when we talk about, I know we were going to get to this, and I don't mean to jump the gun, but let's talk about redistricting. Yeah, let's talk about the redistricting case. And uh, when we get to redistricting, where, you know, there's uh, the case Matter of Hoffman versus New York State Independent Redistricting Commission. Uh, this is, uh, I'm going to say, part two of the Harkin-Ryder case that came uh, last year. And when if uh, we really can't talk about Associate Judge Halligan on this case uh, because... Oh, yes, we can. Well, wait because a second. She... Well, wait a second. Uh, I'll, uh, Do you have some inside dope about why she recused herself? I yeah, don't she have recused. inside dope. She recused. I don't, but... But but the fallout or the not the implications the what will happen as a result of her recusal and the result of the fact that actually you have a judge brought up to replace her actually if, well, if that's I'm not happened, mistaken but that happens all the time there's uh, that's right there's a number of cases including ones that we've just I thought in. only I thought only if the panel couldn't meet the quorum no that's no if, if they have to if if you can't get a quorum but they're allowed to whenever there's a vacancy and, and on some of the cases we've been talking about there have been judges that were brought oh, yeah. up in some instances yeah. they actually write the majority and or some of them who actually have been vouched in by wilson voted against him <laughs> that's so, right. yeah that's right. you know it, it used to be the tr the customary practice was that uh the court would hear the case and if they were divided three to three, then they would vouch somebody in. Come on. You know the games that can be played by that? People are complaining that Wilson has changed it. Now what Wilson says is, if there's a possibility at all that it's going to be three to three, vouch somebody in before we hear mm -hmm. the case so we don't have to hear it all over again. Yeah, yeah. because under the prior, the, the, the prior way it was done, if there was a tie, then you would have to Go through the whole process. The again. whole darn thing again. New person on the bench, new arguments, another bite at the apple. Yeah. 
So on this case, it, uh, uh, new associate judge Halligan uh, recused herself. Uh, because of some sort of relationship, either a personal uh, relationship or a professional relationship. I don't think there was any statement as to the reason. No. Uh, well, she checked the box. There, there's yeah. a form yeah. now that they check a box. But you know, every time you're asked to fill out a form by checking a box, there, there's usually some, there's usually nothing that is precisely, right, um, resolving the reasons why you're doing something. You know, we mm. see that with race. Fill out what race you are. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Look, if if a judge thinks that there's a uh, some reason why they should recuse themselves, then I don't think that there's. I don't. I right. that. It's better I that they recuse themselves. Yes. yes, I don't have a problem with the recusal. I just think it's fascinating because it's hard to read the tea leaves about where this comes down because Renwick didn't really say very much. So it was difficult to say where the judge would come down on this particular case. Well, it is. And and so this case has been, was argued uh, a couple of weeks back. There's been no decision yet. And I'm sure after there's a decision, we'll we'll talk about it. So it's really unknown. What what struck me about the argument was, you know, the, the it seems like the real issue is the whole whether it was uh, timely under the mandamus rules, whether it was within the four months, that seemed to be, they spent an awful lot of time talking about where the four month clock started ticking. Well, whether the whether the last decision only applied to the last election cycle, in which case the commission would have to go back to the drawing no, Liz, board. No, Liz, that's, yeah, that's correct. That's the underlying issue. But the, there was a real, there was a procedural issue in the case that's, that I think took up much of the time uh, in the argument, which was fairly lengthy, where they talked about whether uh, when the case should have been brought, whether mm -hmm. it was brought in a timely fashion, was it brought when the redistricting commission said that they weren't going to do a second set of um, of maps, or was it when at the last moment when the redistricting commission could have submitted the, uh, another set of maps? It was really. Um, just procedural. A lot of the discussion was just procedural, not about the underlying substance of what's going to happen that, that right. Liz, you, you brought up. Well, the thing is, though, I, I got it. We were talking earlier about appeal appeals and, you know, not in this context, obviously, but, uh, the, you know, if this gets if, if, if this gets shot down uh, on a technicality like the timing. Right. I think people are going to be very angry and go higher or seek to go higher. It, well, it, it is a way for, for some of the judges to get rid of the, the case, case. Yep. so they don't have to decide it on the merits. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Which I think is weak. Well, yeah, but that's that's what they did, for example, in all the gun cases. Right. No, it's not preserved. It's not preserved. Yeah, because the Supreme Court hadn't even decided the case yet. You know. So, you know, they do these kinds of things. But I think there are several judges on the court that actually want to get to the merits and want to say, look, the remedy the first time around was really non-constitutional. I don't want to say it was unconstitutional because I don't know what else the court could have done, but it certainly is not within right. the procedures as the state constitution requires. Um, so, you know, it seems like it was just an emergency measure. I mean, I think that's really the substantive issue in the case, whether or See, not it was so done previously though, was just man. an emergency measure. 
Right. But this is when you are dealing with uh, not it makes branches of government uncomfortable to to sit, you know, judgment on one another, not necessarily that there's not a long history of the judiciary making, um, you know, involving itself in the outcome of elections, certainly uh, uh, go back to hanging chads and whatnot. But this is such a political matter. I mean, the criticism of the decision that rejected this in the first place that started this whole conversation was so fraught about who appointed whom and who had, was in whose pocket, et cetera. I could understand if I were a justice, I'm not saying it's right because it's weak, but I could understand it. I was like, ah, technicality, let's just move it along. Yeah. But of course, in this case, if the court does say there needs to be a new redistricting, it's really just criticizing the previous yes. decision, at least the remedy for the previous decision. It's not criticizing the uh, another well, branch I, of government. I, I think there's daylight there between the two. Then uh, yeah. the previous decision made a decision for that particular election. Uh, they didn't say that it was going to st- stay in perpetuity for the rest right. until the next sentence, the next uh, sentence. The next they, sentence. But they didn't no, say I the opposite. <laughs> they didn't say the opposite either. I mean, no. I think I think there's da- I think there's daylight there. They said the process yeah. wasn't constitutional. Yes. They're going back now and saying, okay, you said the process wasn't constitutional. Let's make it constitutional. Absolutely. And so I think you can I think you can have it both ways, actually. You can you yes. can accept the prior case and also accept now that we're gonna follow the constitution yes. because now we have a little bit more time. Before they didn't have the time to do it. So once again, David, you've clarified a difficult uh, issue. No, it's true. You know, so on the one hand, the court might have well been correct that what the Democrats had done was partisan gerrymandering, unconstitutional under our state constitution. But number two, what do you do? Well, what the court did on an emergency basis was send it to this trial judge, right, who then carved up the state. But that doesn't mean that the carving up the state by that trial judge is the permanent remedy. I don't think there's, like you said, there's nothing in that opinion that says this is the permanent remedy. Unfortunately, there isn't anything there that says it isn't. So we're going to have to wait and see on what the decision is by the the Court of Appeals. And when they come out with their decision, we'll we'll talk about it again, I'm sure, at length. There's one more issue that, that I want to talk about, and that's involving the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the the three of us I, uh, have talked quite a bit in the past about the Supreme Court and some of its conduct and and uh, its ethical uh, lack of ethical rules. Um, and the Supreme Court, I think, was listening. And, oh, please! Uh, I uh, I'm pretty sure, Liz, that they were listening. Uh, no, no. No. Yes, they, they were. They not, were listening. Wait, hold on. You're going to say they were listening and they responded by they giving responded. themselves a non-code of ethics. <laughs> what did you call it? You called it whatever you I called a it. A code of accommodation. A code of ethical accommodation. This is just. This is such transparent balderdash. If yeah. you can't, you can't call something a code of ethics if it has no mechanism of enforcement. Any way of reporting and holding yourself accountable is bull. I'm sorry, it's well, bull. Well, the court, the court, the court said in its statement regarding its what it refers, what it refers to as a code of conduct, says the absence of a code previously led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the yeah. justices of this court. Uh, regard themselves as as unrestricted. So 
basically they submitted this list to correct uh, the misunderstanding that was out there, not because they needed Who's misunderstanding. Sort of... They're misunderstanding. Oh, come on, Liz. You got no. the public misunderstanding. You, you got heard... the New York you... Times, you got the Washington Post, uh, and no. Miranda warnings misunderstanding what the Supreme Court is doing. Yeah, here's right. the problem. The big, Have you ever heard the that trade. the saying, if it walks like a duck? Yeah. How could you possibly not know that to be taking gifts from rich donors and being flown around and all the, the mishigas that goes on is not appropriate for public figures. So you're for, for so public servants. Oh, are you so saying that unseemly. as a lifetime appointee, you are somehow held outside the, the confines of acceptable behavior that everybody, again, we go back to the logic of the average person on the street who would look askance at all of that and say, that smells like doo-doo. Would a, would, a re, would a reasonable person have that, grounds right. to think that a judge is impartial because of that? Well, yes, of course. And that's the federal law. But the Supreme Court has deemed it not to be applicable to themselves. You know, what's interesting, that this even in this in this code that they've put down, which they said is really nothing new. Um, they said it's not a reason what a reasonable person uh, consider that to be improper, but a reasonable person that has all the knowledge of all the facts, uh, including all the facts that the Supreme Court justice has that isn't being shared publicly. Like which is fact. no one, which is exactly no one person, the justice themselves. That's well, right. That's, that's the question you, I you have. Know, in the code of what ethics. What does this prevent? What does this actually prevent? Nothing. And, Nothing. and if someone violates it, what happens? Nothing. Well, we don't know. We don't know. No. There's no the, enforcement. There's the no code of ethics, the code of ethics and federal law is to prevent even the appearance of impartiality right. because it's so darn important in our republic that people have faith in the judiciary. This this new supposedly code of ethics does nothing with regard to that. If the justice can say, well, you know, I have facts the public doesn't know. The public all thinks I'm totally biased and partial and I'm getting gifts from billionaires, but they don't know all the things I know. No, the appearance of impartiality is so extraordinarily important for courts. This to me was actually a thumbing of the nose at all of the critics that we were naming earlier, Miranda warnings, of course, yeah. in the New York Times and the Washington Post. You want a code of ethics? We'll give you a code of ethics. Shut up. Here's your damn code of ethics. Now leave us alone. That's how I read that. We yeah, don't really Liz, give a hoot about you. Liz, do, do you think that maybe uh, Chief Justice John Roberts got as much as he possibly could? Yeah. And what does that court, say that about his John court would go That his court would go along with? Yeah. It says not a lot about John Roberts then, does it? Well, what do you... Hey, he's got, you know, there there are nine independent justices on the court. There are nine independent ones. They are like nine separate law firms, right? It's not as though, you know, well, I'm the chief and this is what I'm going to do. That's not the way it works. Yeah, so, but you know, the, he's got to get different. the consensus of his court. I, I understand. But this, I would argue that this is different from a chief justice administrative point of view this is not we are all coming together with our respective legal expertise and battling it out to, to determine what is the appropriate outcome of or this or that case. This is I'm the guy who is who's who's put in charge to run the court. And as an administrative 
responsibility. I am telling you guys that what you put together here is not acceptable. Yeah. Well, you know, he also has uh, not only this new code of ethical accommodation, but he also is setting up some kind of a committee. I forget what it is, some kind of a um, review board or monitoring board. And, you know, maybe they're going to refine this code. Well, uh, then can I just can I just note to you that the time honored tradition in government Yes, when you don't I know, know what I to know. do is to create a task force or a commission yeah. and to kick a can down the road. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I I am the skunk at the garden party. I am a skeptic, and I think that this whole thing is. Oh, yeah, so am I. Yeah, yep. All right. Well, the New York City Bar <laughs> Association certainly knows a thing or two about forming committees, and yeah. <laughs> maybe so, we should. This and send an appropriate blueprint of ethics the the miranda warnings ethical guidelines okay. I'll, we'll just do us we'll do a an ai uh summary of uh the podcast and we'll we'll send that off to uh chief judge roberts uh, new committee uh, yeah and hey, you know david i know you wanted to talk about the stevens case which i think is extremely important not only stevens Okay. Not only the Stevens case by itself, but as compared to what the United States Supreme Court has been doing, you know, with this major yeah. questions doctrine. Well, the rulemaking, we did talk uh, last time on Miranda warnings about the Supreme Court uh, addressing issues regarding rulemaking. And, and of course, the Stevens case versus the New York State Division of Criminal Justice uh, talks about that in uh, the New York State context, whether a legislative grant of rulemaking authority of the Commission on Forensic Sciences uh, to promulgate DNA search regulations was uh, appropriate and court said yes. Yeah, well, the, well, the court said, speaking through Wilson, so right. of course, that means you got a pretty damn good opinion. Um, Wilson is saying, look, this is a matter of statutory interpretation. It's pretty darn clear from the statute's delegation to the Data Bank Commission that they were giving the commission this power, this particular power. This is not one of those cases where the statute's not clear at all. And therefore, you know, you have this commission coming up with rules which aren't clearly authorized under the statute. But not only that, you know, as opposed to the environmental protection case, uh, the Supreme Court and the uh, student loan case at the Supreme Court, where Roberts comes up with this major questions doctrine. So even though the Congress delegates authority to a commission or some agency, the agency can't go too far because that interferes with separation of powers, separation of powers. If they're going to go too far, that kind of authority belongs to the Congress. But what Wilson did here is say, this is not a matter of clarity or not. This statute is very, very clear. It's very clear it does give the commission this authority. So, And he doesn't even talk about the major questions doctrine. We're not concerned about that. Well, it's what's interesting in this case, and this so we'll, we're going to tie it all in here sure. because there's two people that said yeah. two judges are set by designation: Judge uh, Lindley and Lynch, and they joined uh, the dissent. Judge Troutman in the dissent, yeah. and Lindley actually 
wrote the dissent. Yeah. And, and they said there, there was a, I think a good line here that I think picks up on what you said that, that, that in this situation, uh, they dissented because the conduct crosses what they called the hazy line yes. between administrative rulemaking That's right. and legislative policymaking. And in this case, they crossed that hazy line. Yeah. The and I think, it was a, I think it was a very good opinion. This is one of those cases where you want a good court of appeals to be resolving it. It's a tough case. There are good arguments on both sides. I think Wilson got it right, but you could go either way. I think you're absolutely right, David. I, and and I, I think to, to bring back to, to Liz's point about the sitting by designation, the it, it, it's clear that from the decisions here that there's no fear or favor by mm. these designees uh, because that's right. <laughs> as often as not, they're real, they're on the other side of of where Chief Judge Wilson is. Yeah. So I thought you were going to end on you're right, David. I thought that when Vin said you were right, you were going to be like, and that's a wrap. (laughs) (laughs) What he should have said was, yes, Vin says I'm right. He's never said that about Liz. Actually, I did say you were right last week about something. You did. I don't remember that, Vin, but I'm going to start thinking. You were very complimentary. I think it was the, you know, you're getting into holiday mode. Uh, (laughs) You were very complimentary. Next time, eggnog. So, all right, eggnog next time. Thank you both. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review. 